0: please visit Cambridge at www.cambridge.org. There you can find their entire catalog of books. And, of course, you can buy them there as well. So please visit the press today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and this week I'm very pleased to say we have John Brook on the show, and we'll be talking about... His book, Climate Change and the Course of Global History, A Rough Journey. I was telling John before the interview that I've done a little research in what I would call big history. I think he'll call it big history, too. And this is a wonderful contribution to big history. And I really look forward to talking to John about it. So let me say welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Marshall. Um, uh, I'm glad to be here. Great. So could you kick the interview off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, very briefly, I am an historian, have, uh,
1: licensed in American history, but uh, <laughs> uh, background acu- ocupa- in and, and, uh, and now occupation, a, a global historian. I work at Ohio State University.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, did they teach you the secret handshake when they licensed you? Uh, pretty much, right. I didn't ever get the secret handshake. <laughs> um, go Buckeyes, though. Uh, as someone who t- used to teach at Iowa, I can't, you know, that's not so good. So, in any event... <laughs> um, so, in any event, would you tell us why you wrote "Climate Change in the Course of Global History: A Rough Journey"? Well, this is a long story. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's—I uh, uh, mean, it does go back to my to. Um, I, I recently read my my application to graduate school, which I wrote in uh, fall winter of seventy five seventy in nineteen seventy five, and. Um, I was applying to an American history program at Penn, and I was thinking in global terms and um when I got to penn, I was told, look, just put that stuff in the background. we're doing American history here and that was fine you know so i i um i um dutifully and and actually quite joyfully um worked in the vineyards of American history, wrote a couple books and at that point, having finished my second book um decided eh, you know I think i'll I'll go back to I'll go back to my environmental history interests and my current um, uh, employer, at Tufts University, was looking for someone. They were offering um, uh, they're looking for people to teach in environmental studies. So I. Launched a course in nineteen. Did, did a lot of research summer of ninety three, and then in the ninety four ninety five academic year, started a course in global environmental history. And I basically, I thought, all right, I'm going to teach one course, and it's not going to be American. Uh, the American, the classic American environmental history, which is a great course, but I just felt we have one globe and. W- you know, one humanity and uh, one big history and I want to I teach it all together um, the deep background on this is I did a um, double major at Cornell in history and anthropology and archaeology um, in 1974, 40 years ago, this summer, very bizarre to think it's so long ago. I worked the uh, summer on an archaeological site on the Mesolithic, which is you know pre-agriculture in Holland, uh, for all summer long, and and um, and I had this. So I had this background in. Prehistory back into the Paleolithic, so I, I could handle the, the big time scales that are involved here. So this course uh, this course evolved out of that background interest, and then uh, around two thousand and five, I started thinking about uh, pretty seriously about, about writing a book, mm. and the book evolved from there. and uh, Wrote a draft by two thousand and nine, and then
0: revised it, revised it, revised it, and, revised it and uh, now it's now it's before you. Well. You're too modest. Perhaps we should say something about the historiographical or even political climate of this book about climate change. Obviously, yeah, it's very yeah, yeah. Um, it's very topical at the moment. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, obviously, in the you know, it's, it's interesting to think of how that unfolded in, in my own thinking. Um, I mean, I was obviously concerned about it, and and uh, in the backdrop, um, the backdrop of when I actually started working on the course. I was thinking about it in the late '80s, and and I can still remember the Hanson, the James Hanson, uh, testified in Congress in 1988, and then the uh, the idea that that greenhouse gases were heating the atmosphere was uh, confirmed through the back door by the cooling effect of Mount Pinatubo explosions in uh, 1993. So obviously um, I've had a long-term exposure to and involvement in the uh, science and and politics of climate change. Um, I didn't have as as Detailed and understanding of it as I do now, I have to say, uh, quite bluntly, writing this book was um, I was gradually beginning to turn the corner to the interpretation I build in this book, which is, in essence, that um, not only is climate change obviously incredibly important, but and not only have there been climate change patterns in the past. Um, but they have shaped the course and trajectory of human history. Um, Human history is not isolated from its natural environment and for most of human history that means um, that uh, we have responded to and acted within the framework of natural events now, and now is an incredibly short period of time, the last 100 years or so, 140 years perhaps, uh, we are actively, very actively shaping that um, Earth system environment, that atmospheric environment, and uh, that process has been accelerating massively um, since literally when I was born. I'd, I was uh keep talking about the uh, in my classes I talk about the micro events of of the last uh, 60 years when uh because uh, in 1958 uh the the first the first uh, measurements were taken on Mauna Loa of annual changes in CO2 in the atmosphere uh and the, that those levels have increased um, more since 1958 than they had since the 1870s. Uh, so the last, the last, uh, the last 50 years, um, 55 years, uh, uh, the level of atmospheric CO2 has, um, just le- leapt enormously. So we're scraping, you know, we're at 400 probably, uh, sometime, um up right about now. I suspect that if we went to the Manolo site, I haven't looked at it in the last couple of days, but uh, we should be, you know, at the 402 uh, weekly level, because uh, that's what happened last year. Uh, no reason to think we aren't there now. Uh, and what does that mean? 402 parts per million, which I must admit, I just pulled that out of the sky. <laughs> um, but that's basically what what things were, uh, you know, the week of May 20. 20- 8th um, in 2013, um, the background numbers for the post-glacial period, the last 10,000 years, oscillating around 280 parts per million. And since, uh, literally since 1958, we have jumped from about 315 uh, to 400 Um and uh, the pre- there had been a slight expansion before that, but really the
0: the impact of what's happened in the last uh, 50, 60 years is really very stunning. Mm-hmm. So let's do what historians do best and put some of that in perspective. Your, your book begins an extraordinarily long right. time ago. So uh, the universe, I think, is 13.8 billion years old. And the Earth is about 5 million years old, if I recall correctly, 4.8, something like that? Four, billion, yeah, billion yeah, it's probably,
1: old. maybe, James, I would say 4.56 or something like don't that. Really I years old, right? right. right. And
0: yeah. then, And then Earth is, a, I mean, and then life is about 4 billion years old? Something I'm, of that. I'm order, guessing yeah. here. Really.
1: Yeah, and, and, and they well. are guessing, too. That, you know, there's many scenarios, and the latest scenarios really are four. Relatively early emergence of life and and frequent extin- frequent um, you know uh, extinctions um, until it finally and finally locked in mm-hmm. and um, so yes obviously enormous time frame uh, I mean, that's part of the part of the the, the 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 lesson of the book and lesson of what I try to the way I try to teach it is I teach the entire thing and I'm afraid my poor students it is it is a little exhausting but. The, the logic to this is to, is to see how microscopic our place is in that enormous history and in fact that this the earth has gone through these incredible environmental uh, crises and transitions that are n- purely natural um, and um, we are, when we talk about reaching 400 parts per million um, in CO2 in the atmosphere, that level has not been seen in the atmosphere um, 10 to 38 million years ago. mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, you know, we, however you want to parse it, is it in the Miocene or is it in the Oligocene? But we are talking about climbing back up an enormous cycle that leads us back to the literally back to the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs, the peak of the uh, last great greenhouse supercycle that there have been three in the last, you know, six hundred million years. Um, uh the peak of the last greenhouse supercycle, there were dinosaurs roaming the earth to the North Pole. Um, and the parts per the you were, you know, somewhere between a thousand and two thousand parts per million in the atmosphere. We have never even vaguely you know, we have lived we we evolved in a totally different environment. We evolved in increasingly cooler and um uh, we might say cleaner, greenhouse gas environment, and we're rapidly uh, moving toward when you talk about doubling and quadrupling scenarios of releasing greenhouse gases suddenly um, from 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 the Arctic, um, uh, caused by the accelerating pressure of uh, fossil fuel emissions. Um, you know, we're talking about a shift, a sudden, abrupt. Transition to conditions that have not been seen in you know tens and tens of millions of years um, and that could happen in a century and now that's that's abrupt by geological scales it might even happen much more abruptly um, and that's that's the that's the problem people now are talking about about you know the, the have been talking for, for for years about the possibility of a very abrupt shifts uh, taking you know less than a lifetime mm-hmm. and um and the Arctic ice pattern is looking somewhat like that. I mean, they predicted Arctic ice melting in a long curve that was quite dramatic, but it, it stretched out into the 21st century. Well, that the the actual melt-off is ex- is moving much much faster than they expected, and the the actual measured uh, decline of Arctic ice um, is uh, uh, you know fundamentally dramatic, and that's that's. You know, that is a is 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 unprecedented for um uh, I mean the Arctic has been has been glaciated for uh since two point five million years ago, began to, began to glaciate. Uh we haven't had a totally you know, deglaciated Arctic um for you know <laughs> for over over you know, probably over two million years. Um and uh, you know, keep in mind the species modern anatomically modern humans are only 200,000 years old Um, so um you know our when we think about history, we think about what happened um you know what happened uh, in World War two we worry about what happened in World War one, we worry about the you know the, the shape of the industrial revolution, we worry about what you know the cause of the civil war the cause of the american revolution but this is this is these are incredibly important political events of the last you know eight to ten generations mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about um, time scales that take us back uh, five hundred to fifteen hundred to to three four thousand generations, um, obviously more um, and uh, um, but in terms of you know, earth systems, we live in an earth system and and it it has its chronologies and we have we have ours and that's part of the disjunction in the current debate which is people can't really imagine these huge systems shifting that rapidly and the lesson of the last 30 years in climate science is that these systems do shift that radically, that rapidly, and nobody wants to hear that. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally don't really blame them. Who wants? To, <laughs> who wants to deal with you know a fundamentally changed world? Nobody really wants it. I mean, nobody really wants it. Nobody wants it. You know, we we, can, we nobody wants to even think about it. But um, and certainly not the scientists who, who discovered it. But the reality is it is out there and it's not, it's not uh, something that's always made up. Um, and uh, um, uh, it's not an unnatural reaction for the, for the first timer coming to the material to be utterly
0: frightened by, by the, the, the specter of what could possibly happen. Mm-hmm. So let's tell a little bit of the story. Why don't we start with the moment at which, um, well, the conditions under which life appeared on earth that the thesis of the book, if I could say most generally is, is that climate, Broadly construed, that is the temperature and the condition of the atmosphere, what's in it, uh, that sort of thing, the amount of water uh, available, um, you know, uh, methane in the air and oxygen in the air, mm. CO2 in the air. Th- this has had a very important uh, impact on uh, what forms of life evolved, how they evolved and when they evolved. So um, it's, it's this. This is really the sort of causal moment in the book. So can we begin by talking about you know, the origin of life?
1: right well, we can yeah i mean, i must admit i don't i mean, i do talk about it, but i don't spend a huge amount of time on it um i mean the origins of life um uh are a matter of, of a debate that i must admit i don't want to get too <laughs> <laughs> too, too far into because because it's a it's it's a a complex uh, and shifting battlefield um but what what is what is key is is the um um uh, is the what i what I like to focus on are the the wider what I like to call earth system context of um th- not just the the origins of life um in its uh, you know prokaryote forms but uh, which you know which are which are the things that are you know fundamentally uh you know obviously that is incredibly important though some people argue that you know some of those prokaryote forms were potentially you know emerging on other planets and it's not really that Dramatic that they happen. What what is dramatic is that the Earth system developed um, uh, its own its own structure and history. So the Earth, if we do a transect of the Earth, it looks internally different from Mars and Venus uh, because we developed a uh, an active living Earth. Uh, in other words, the the outer, and the, the driver to this is a, is a very simple process, which it, it's a simple when you've when you kind of put your head around it, which is that in the, in the outer core of the, the molten outer core, there is this constant process that's been happening since the beginning of the Earth, which is the sorting out of the, of the elements, and basically, very simply, heavy stuff falls. Down and light stuff comes up and so we have a heavily we have this iron nickel core and this can this process of differentiation of light and heavy elements means that there's a, a you know we developed a crust on the, on the edges of the earth we developed an atmosphere around the outside of the earth, and then a convection current began to develop mm-hmm. inside of that that outer core and that drives enormous uh, that is the life of the planet and in it, in the in the longest terms and and as that system matured, um, it created contexts in which uh, tech, in, in which tectonic processes, meaning continents, uh, began to develop and then be subducted. And um, so the the uh, what I found dramatic is, is how these, you know, the debates about how these processes line up, um, life-evolving in... Um, um, uh, and shifting rapidly from um, essentially uh, from so-called uh prokaryotic to eukaryotic forms um, w- much more clearly complex forms um, as the um, in the context of a dramatic um Literally, events in in the Earth system as as atmosphere as, as atmosphere. Um, well, let's first first focus on on the the uh, the, uh, uh, the, the the tectonic sort of, uh, processes. Those mm-hmm. the first eruption of those processes, and really you know, continental formations uh, may have set the stage and created the context in which this relatively rapid transition of from prokaryote to eukaryote evolved. And then that itself may have contributed to this debate about. The that, how much did the emergence of um, uh, uh, oxygen producing life forms uh, change the atmosphere itself? Mm-hmm. So, and, and they talk about great oxidation moments, uh, which are taking millions of years, but great oxidation shifts um, and they occur at either end of uh, the protozoic so we have a paleoprotozoic crisis and a neoprotozoic crisis and in between a fairly you know, roughly billion billion and a half years of stability with fairly simple life forms um... and then the the uh, what i find most dramatic is that is that uh... is that neoprotozoic crisis in which um, uh, a whiplash of tectonic uh, uh, you know, your Earth system, uh, geological forces interacting with the atmosphere, um, interacting with the m- rapidly evolving biology, um, um, seems to put the Earth through a series of intense glaciation um, uh, episodes called snowball Earth periods, uh, when the stresses of that of this whiplash between very warm and very cold um, conditions over several. Um, several million, several tens of millions of years uh, led to the rise of not just multicellular forms, but you know, uh, chordates and um, uh, complex life forms that um, visible life forms. Um, Stephen Jay Gould uh, called the, the wrote a book years ago called The Burgess Jail about the complex life forms that emerged during this Cambrian period um, and you know, a great event based transition. So one of the things that I, struck me as I as I uh, became more you know kind of retooled uh, 20 20 years ago in um, geology and biology was that there were you could either look at the evolution of life as a slow mechanistic process um, you know survival of fitness, fittest essentially a, a mathematical process by which some random events random processes unfolded through time and and there wasn't much pattern to it. Or it was just a smooth, a smooth, uh, continuous pattern. Or alternatively, uh, and this was, I mean, I should credit where credit due. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldredge um, proposed a model in the late 70s of punctuated change, mm-hmm. that uh, great events, in dramatic events in the Earth system, drove um, accelerations of evolution. And, uh, and very broadly, this is the the accepted model these days. That mm-hmm. um, um, that uh, that there's a very close connection between the evolution of life as we know it and um, the evolution of the planet uh, the history, the specific history of the planet and that, that as we can talk about the American Revolution and the Civil War and World War One, World War II, and the rise of parties as you know events in American history, uh, but we can also talk about events in Earth history that matter. We all should know about them and two of them are the Paleoprotozoic the Crisis and the Neo-Protozoic Crisis, um, as
0: well as the Arts of Life during the um, Haitian uh, Archean transition. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump forward a little bit and talk about uh, the emergence of humans, or humanoids, yeah. or hominins, yeah. or whatever right. we might call them, yeah. uh, how does the uh, climate play into that? That's right. about 200,000 years ago we get right. uh, modern humans, or behaviorally modern humans, I guess?
1: Well, yeah, I mean the, the, I mean, the other way to look at that is is um, is to set, you know, ask ourselves how did we evolve? And, and, and um, uh, Stanley Ambrose wrote a book called uh, Children of the Ice Age which, um, about the, about, um, the emergence of humanity, um, over the course of the Miocene, the Pliocene, and the Pleistocene, which, is, which metaphorically is a wonderful image. And it, it is a wonderful image. And, and the, 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 backdrop to that is that we, we are now in, in geological time, in an ice house condition. And, um, there have been, uh, we are now in the, uh, the, the Cenozoic ice House there was a uh, uh, essentially a, 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 mesozoic, a mesozoic a Paleozoic mesozoic ice house, and then there were the ice houses of the the, the end of the the uh, paleozoic um, the, 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 yeah, the paleo Um My point being broadly that we are a product of of a long term cooling process unfolding over since about, you know, it probably began before 65 million years ago, um, and has been unfolding. You know, it, 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 it's part of an internal cycle to the to the to the Earth system. Um, certainly accelerated by various processes, um, but uh, the last, the, the the rise of humanity can be
0: uh,
1: broadly patterned. It's or patterned by. Um, Fair very, very significant events in the um, this long term cooling that 's been unfolding over these millions of years, so we don 't get into mammalian evolution, but at all this whole cooling process has led to the rise of mammals uh, and other aspects of of the modern biosphere that we take for granted, and then we came along in um, uh Under you know certain specific pressures in Eastern Africa um, during the uh, the Miocene-Pliocene and Pleistocene, um, and uh, so benchmarks, um, benchmark points being you know the onset of of um, uh, Arctic glaciation among others um, at two point five million, probably led to to the the. Um, uh, in drought conditions in eastern Africa, acceleration of need for, um, uh, for uh, habitat stress, and some kind of adaptive adaptive reaction. And one of those adaptive reactions was proto you know, pre-human populations beginning to use tools more effectively and to uh, scavenge scavenge uh, uh, kill sites where uh, where big cats, lions, have killed killed uh, large large animals out on the on, on the on the savannah and get fat for their children. Brain size expanded <laughs> uh, and um, and we get smarter. Small hobbit-like, uh, uh, so-called homo habilis, emerging out of that. Um, and you know, another great transition unfolding, you know, whether or not this has a climate effect now or not, that's unquestion- unknown, but uh, uh, you know, the emergence of fire, uh, control fire, now dated to about a million years ago from a site in South Africa, a major transition uh, which leads to you know, fundamentally um, of uh, the modern human physique, of, of a relatively large head and a relatively small stomach. Uh, we don't have a huge stomach to to because we pre-digest our food. We cook it, uh, and that's been going on for a million years. And then the specifics of modern human modern human emergence out of you know a, a, over the course of uh, that's from two point five or from five million, uh, if you want to go back to Australopithecus. Um, Specific climate pressures uh, in Eastern Africa driving uh, adaptive change and increasingly um, uh, a change that led to an increasingly um, uh, generalist approach essentially under, under to, to rather than being specifically committed to one strategy being able to figure out different strategies to make essentially to make a living to survive to survive and to to reproduce um, but it looks pretty clear that there were if we think about the origins of modern humanity as you just you, you were asking about two hundred thousand years ago, very very intense droughts in eastern Africa leading to very small bottlenecks of human population out of which in, 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 in which with very reduced populations particular genetic traits uh, spread very fast and in the wake of these mega droughts we have the first evidence of anatomically modern humans um, in eastern Africa at, um, at 190 and 160 um,
0: in uh, the earliest modern human um, sites in Ethiopia uh, which is a very dramatic moment Mm -hmm. Well, let's jump forward again. And our time periods are getting smaller and smaller. I'm sure the listener will notice things are speeding up. So let's jump forward again to uh, what I think is the most, uh, I don't know what's the most interesting, but I I was going to use the word confused because we don't exactly know what's going on. And there's been a lot of scholarly attention to it. That is the uh, origin of, um, and I don't even know what to call it there's so much debate going on, sedentism, uh, agriculture, uh, horticulture, yes, right. uh, I don't know, cities? Right, uh, uh, right you right, You right,
1: right. You right. pick one. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, therein lies, you know, it's pretty clear that, you know, you know, agriculture was, it's probably, it's probable that agriculture was... Um, pretty much impossible during the ice ages. When you have CO2 down there, at during the ice age, CO2 was at about 180. And there is a pretty good 180 parts per million. And a, a pretty argument to be made that those conditions, um, it's, people have done experiments, um, simply agriculture was impossible. What is striking is how rapidly agriculture begins to develop um, as soon as the conditions shift and so we have a combination during the last warm-up, which happened um, – first we have a little we – have, we have a brief uh, kind of uh, period of warmth that lasted about 1,000 a, a years, and then a cold 1,000 a years of called the Younger Dryas where things suddenly cool down again caused by the impact of fresh water into the North Atlantic, stopping – stopping uh, great uh, ocean currents and shutting the whole system down again. You have to think of the system of warmth driven by massive ocean currents as well as by by atmospherics, and the, the, the ocean currents stopped suddenly, and because of fresh water suddenly being dropped out of the melting glaciers into the North Atlantic, and... You know, it took about a thousand years to recover. But as that, as that transition, as, as things warm up fairly rapidly, about 9,600 B.C., um, we then get movement toward agriculture in particular locations and in, under what circumstances. That's there and lies the problem. It's probable that as soon as things warm up, people tend to settle in. Even without agriculture, they simply settle into um Places with high biomass productivity, where the particularly regions that are swampy and wet that produce a lot of a lot of good things to eat, and uh, this is called the Mesolithic. Um, this is a period where they are, uh, and a lot of Mesolithic societies survived until the recent past. and basically societies that were other societies that were not farming. Um, those societies were uh, in many cases actually sedentary because they had no need to move or they moved much less than we expect them. That we thought they might, uh, they might move from, you know, seasonally, in a in a small uh, tribal range. Um, <clears throat> uh, and the transition to, to, Full-scale agriculture is something that, that really does take, by human history time, pr- perspective, you know, quite a bit of time. It takes about four or 5,000 years. And even in the places where it moves most rapidly, which is in China and in uh, Southwest Asia, meaning the Fertile Crescent, Uh, what is now Syria, Iraq, and um, Israel, and Lebanon. Um, And it is a complex story. It's not a simple story, but it's one that that really has two phases. One, the the, um, experimentation with horticulture, uh, by in a society that more you know increasing dependence on horticulture, particularly involving women's labor, it looks pretty clear that women are doing that work and men were still hunting and herding. Um, and then a transition to full-scale what we call traditional peasant agriculture sometime in the last uh, sometime between say uh, 6000 B.C. and 4000 B.C. in both China and in Southwest Asia. Um, and uh, um, by, by 4000, 3000 BC, U.S. societies that are, um, we could more or less handle. I mean, they would be pretty strange to be dropped into them, but anybody who's kind of got a back understanding of, you know, people live in, in mud walled cities and mud wall villages, and they use. Cattle for various things, and and there's no electricity. <laughs> um, you know, conditions like this were not uh, existed in the 20th century. Um, uh, it wouldn't be impossible to live in these in these contexts, um, um, and the climate context for that really is is one the warm the, the warmer conditions, but two, what I stress in the middle part of my book is. Not just that the Holocene, the last, which is the last 10,000 years, has been a warm period, but it has had a pattern to it. And so much of my story, uh, my analysis, is about the pattern of climate change since the end of the ice ages um that is nowhere near as deep as that as the patterns of the of the pleistocene and of the grand structures of earth history running back to the origins um of of the earth but but it has a pattern and those patterns have affected the the health and the welfare of uh human uh, human societies um uh, as they become more and more dependent on agriculture and become more and more concentrated in, uh, the exciting places like cities. Uh, cities are a fun places to live, but they're also, uh, they, they have a environmental footprint. Uh, and they're also dangerous places to live because people tend to get sick there, uh, in the, in the, in the not so distant past. So, um, much of the book is focused on the, these, uh, the shape of climate change um, in um, a fairly specific century-by-century analysis um, for, uh, uh, to argue that there that it has a pattern, and those patterns um, relate to periods of, of fluorescence and periods of crisis in uh, the history of
0: agricultural societies over the last eight to 9,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about that pattern. I mean, I should also say for uh, the careful listener will obviously have noted that we have now crossed the boundary into uh, what historians would call historical time because now right. we have written right. documents. This is usually right. where uh, your uh, Western and Eastern Civ uh, classes will begin. Right. Um, and so we're adding a new layer on those and trying to explain some of what we see in the record. Um, so there'll be actually we can talk about familiar historical events now, not only the rise of cities in the Near East, but uh, you know actual empires, the, the so the, the Greek Golden Age and then the mm-hmm. Romans, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. I'm sorry to be so Western centric, but go ahead and talk about that pattern and uh, take us through that. Right. It's really quite a short period. Um, yeah, so, so yeah. we can we can actually sensibly speak about it. It's, right. a, it's a quite a short period of, of three or four thousand years. So go ahead. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's sometimes easier to do this visually, but
1: <laughs> yeah. we can't. But in, in essence, we have to think of of the last four to five thousand years as already a cooler period than what had occurred previous to that. The period from from uh, the sun warm up and actually very warm, very warm, beneficent climates, um, much much warmer than they are now, running from you know say 8,500 BC to about. 4,000 BC, and that's called the Early Holocene. We live. Uh, it, it, then there was a Mid Holocene crisis, and then we live in broadly the Late Holocene. And during that, during that, during uh, over the last uh, so over the last 5,000 years, we can describe from um, the data produced by the climate scientists. Um, we can describe. Visually and on paper, um, the a pattern that roughly unfolds over twenty two hundred years. They're called Hallstatt solar minima, um, and so these Hallstatt solar minima, which probably means the sun has a has an oscillation to it, and so it, its solar, solar solar shifts are extremely important, and the the. Um, there is a active analysis of how the solar output has has, has evolved over the last ten thousand years, um, and once we get cool enough for those solar solar influences to become significant, happening around five thousand years ago, um, they determine the course and pulse of. Of human human welfare, really. So, okay, when did these happen? One of them was bro- one of these uh, uh, Halstead minima occurred around 4,000 to 3,000 BC. Then we jump forward to about 1,200 to about 800 BC. And today, just to, today is on May 28th. Today, New York Times had an editorial about um, about the uh, the crisis of uh, the Bronze Age, uh, 1200 BC, uh, which was the onset of a of a Hallstatt solar minimum period that lasted for four or five hundred years. So, so we have two there, and then we have the third one happened in relatively recent time. It's called the Little Ice Age, and it began. Eh, the first hints of it were around 1260, 1275 AD. Um, it it um, reached its depths. Um, Around 15, it suddenly got much, much severe around 1560. Uh, and all during the 17th century, we have historically low periods, including the so-called Maunder minimum of the late 17th century, when people were beginning to look at the sun with telescopes and burn their eyes. And, um, <laughs> and they started looking at the sun, and slowly they started seeing sunspots. And, um, Uh, there hadn't been any. So, and they can, they started counting sunspots and realized they, and and over time, well, Mr. Maunder in, in the, uh, in the, About 40 years ago, realized that they were what they had seen was a minimum when there had been no sunspots and it was uh, the the solar activity was solar flares were very low and solar activity was very low, thus correlating with an extremely cold period. Mm -hmm. So you know, so we have the solar patterns and then we have the 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 effects on Earth and one of the most dramatic of them is something called the Siberian High Uh, and that Siberian High pattern um produces a signature in the um, Greenland ice cores of Asian dust, basically a very particular kind of sulfur uh, with a particular kind of chemical signature um, that um, oscillates and you know, r- ripples along. And then it every r- lining up with the Hallstats Uh, goes into these extreme patterns, which suggest extreme cold, stormy weather in the northern hemisphere. Uh, These are described as what they they would influence, say, the Mediterranean or China would be, or Japan, intense winter polar outbursts. uh, and, and, you know, I wouldn't want to call reference to the vortex events of the last year, which are minimal compared to what these things were like. Um, and actually, in the, in the last phase of the Little Ice Age, the French historians have found that they can go through journals and actually map these solar outbursts, these uh, Siberian high outbursts, um, on the landscape uh, from journal diaries of priests writing about cold, cold, snowy events in southern France, uh, and track them day by day, and these things line up exactly to the year with the um, annual data from the Greenland ice cores. Mm. So, um, so really, you know, you got some amazing correlation. So broadly speaking, the pattern is uh, if we just look at say the last um, uh, 3,000 years we came out of the uh, Siberian high uh, desperate cold drought circumstances of that uh, late Bronze Age Hostadt which basically destroyed the Bronze Age this is the point of the editorial today um, that the Bronze Age was was destroyed by, by a Bronze Age both in you know both in in um, Uh, Well, the Bronze Age in the Mediterranean world and and having a global effects. I mean, you can see these patterns everywhere Um, um, because the climate system, which, again, it's hard to describe – By on the telephone, but the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone. A cold north, (laughs) a cold north, a cold north means droughts in India and southwest southern Asia, and it means El Nino storminess on the west coast of of the Americas. So there, there, there literally is, there is a system. It all fits together. And um, so broadly speaking, over the last 5,000 years, we've had this oscillation between either a warm north and good monsoons in India and China, um, and the pretty dry uh, Americas, um, or um, the reverse, uh, very cold north. Uh, Not, you know, Pleistocene cold, but cold. Uh, Little I say cold. Um, And um, uh, droughts in India. Droughts in, um, on the eastern end of what's called the El Nino Southern Oscillation Band that runs the Pacific. Um, and strong, strong El Nino storminess and floods and disaster in, um, in, and oscillating with intense droughts. I mean, what a variation in El Nino gets extreme. And so South America went through intense drought and flood conditions oscillating wildly during these Hallstatt periods. Um, so that's the, you know that's the background. We we are in an optimum. We are in an optimum where we are not in a hostile minimum. We've just we came out of one probably the last you know the last. Uh, there's something called the Dalton minimum, which happened around 1810 to 1820. Uh, that's the last of the Little ice age minima uh kind of um a last uh horn blowing of that of that cycle in the solar, in 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 the in, internal workings of the sun um which you know created cold conditions um in the turn of the, the turn of the, the early 19th century but since then s- solar solar influence has been m- higher uh, to some degree, Um, you know, higher, and um, we're in an optimum, not unlike the Roman Empire and the Han Empire were in an optimum. I mean, really simply, the Roman Empire is bracketed by um, the great ages of empire in both um, the the Mediterranean, Southeast Asian world, and uh, uh, and in in Han China, is distinctly bracketed by Um, the optimum conditions of uh, roughly 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. Um, And then what what you have is a a secondary pattern. In between these grand minima, there are secondary minima, and one of them shaped the dark ages of uh, this uh, broadly 400, 450 A.D. to about 900 A.D. of a... Of a, a moderately cold period, and that it's there's new there's all sorts of consensus emerging that that had its decisive effect on the decline of the Roman Empire. Broadly, the shift toward colder temperatures and uh, wetter conditions in in um, uh, broadly in Europe undermined the wheat economy that underlay the wheat, wine, oil economy that underwrote the Roman Empire. Uh, you couldn't. Couldn't grow the stuff as far north as you could and as you had before, and it undermine the economic basis of of the of the, um, the outer edges of the empire.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and then if you go to China, China has a very <laughs> China has a very complicated climate history, um, which is is. It uh, doesn't quite fit exactly this model, but because of the influence, there's a complication of how the monsoons are shaped by both the Indian Ocean and the Siberian high and and the events in, in the North Pacific. But what is pretty clear and really quite amazing is every single dynastic crisis in Chinese history, as far back as you want to go, is shaped by a – can be aligned with a dramatic drop – a crisis in the climate it doesn't mean that every climate drop caused a crisis in an imperial crisis in China but but every computer crisis is connected to a climate crisis yeah, yeah. and uh, very simply the mandate heaven is withdrawn the uh, the, uh, the crops fail. The drought or floods, uh, in, uh, if impact crops, crops fail. People get hungry. People start to uh, the brigands emerge, um, and um, and the dynasty falls. Um, and every now and then, uh, in the in the in the Middle Ages, the, the Mongols came out of came out of the north, mm-hmm. um, and the nomads came out of the north, and. Uh,
0: Created some some very dramatic uh, specific events in, in China's incredible history. Mm-hmm. I know historians don't like to make predictions, or as a professor of mine used to say, don't like to make predictions, especially about the future.
1: Especially, <laughs> especially about if you really predict about <laughs> yeah. the past. Right? <laughs>
0: um, so, so uh, this cycle is coming back around. Yeah. Yes, it's coming back around. Um, when 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 is it scheduled to arrive?
1: well you know the 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 uh the Hallstatt super minima is well beyond our worries you know it it's if we it's that this the um uh the Hallstatt pattern if, uh, if it's still is if yeah if we haven't overwhelmed it by our own mm-hmm. i mean it's, it's it's highly likely uh that we've overwhelmed Natural, the natural signal um, by because uh, you have to imagine a very warm period in the early Holocene, nine thousand BC to about six thousand BC. Solar influence didn't matter as much; it had to do with how the Earth was tilted toward the toward the sun, and it created a very warm Northern Hemisphere. And solar influences are you know they're there, but they're not significant once you get once. Orbital structure. Basically, the the orbit. When I talk about orbital structure, that means the way the Earth is oriented toward the Sun, either by its tilt, or by its the shape of the orbit, um, or by where the seasons are in a cycle. The seasons shift around the orbit. So there, these are called the Milankovitch uh, cycles, and uh, they operate on different periodicities. And the one that matters for us is precession, and we have been. You know, moving toward a cooler pattern that that allowed these solar cycles to have an effect, starting around five, you know six to five thousand years ago. So I my argument, my position would be this that we are creating the natural cycles will continue they'll keep rolling around but we are doing to the climate. Um, uh, we are changing the climate system, so those natural signals may not have the same effects that they would have in the past. Since we put, um, you know, we doubled. Well, we haven't quite doubled CO two in the atmosphere quite yet, but we are moving toward it. Um, we have increased it by a third. We've increased the pressure on the system, and we certainly have have um, moved global temperatures higher and changed, you know, changed the structure of of uh, of the climate system I mean we what we're dealing with right now, in terms of prediction, how do we predict the future um we're dealing with a a natural system that has been perturbed that has been altered, and so uh, that complicates predictions so so are is the cycle coming around the next hall is probably going to come or what should we say probably in about um uh, let's do the math here. Uh, well, to, we'll say two thousand years from seventeen hundred, so twenty-seven hundred. I'm not too worried about about um, two thousand. Is that right? Twenty-seven hundred. No, that's. Um, i uh, No, that's not even right. That's uh, uh, from seventeen hundred to thirty-seven hundred. Thirty-seven hundred. Yeah. Thirty-seven hundred. Not not something to worry about. Um, the intermediate half cycle. Again, nothing really to worry about. But there's plenty of you know, there's you know, people, there are predictions. There is a debate going on now about what smaller scale solar minimum might. Evolve. They're trying to study the last, you know, what they can of how how the chemistry of the the uh, solar flares hitting um, hitting essentially hitting the atmosphere and being deposited into the glaciers. That chemistry. They study that chemistry through time, and they try to they try to analyze the cycle pattern. And so they're trying to they're trying to predict what will happen in the next hundred to two hundred years. There is a prediction that we might have a solar cycle pattern there isn't a grand pattern, but it would be a, a cooler pattern um, and the it's a prediction uh, that some the next uh, that sometime in the next century we would have a respite from um, the pressures we 're putting on the system um, but on the other hand, it may be that that signal doesn't even doesn't even register because we put we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere so much uh, in the last 170 years, 140 years since I like to benchmark it at 1870, mm-hmm. um, and that's the point of massive transition, mm-hmm. fundamental, fundamental transition. The the emissions numbers just leap off the charts. So yes, there's an industrial revolution before that, but uh, it's nothing like it doesn't have the the. Um, the uh, fossil fuel impacts that we start to get from the 1870s forward. Um, so 140 years of, of really dramatic change, and we don't know where we are. That's, that's the fundamental problem. Um, and so what the climate science has been trying to do, generating amazing data for me then to use for another purpose to interpret the human past, um, they have been trying to figure out how we can map what the natural system is to figure out how far we have gone from the natural system.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. If I could ask a quick question about the, sure. the historians' contribution to the climate change debate. And uh, we can take um, ice core samples, and we can find out how much CO2 was in the air 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, and we see this big spike starting mm-hmm. mid-19th century. Um, that- does that correspond to anything we see in the historical record in terms of a change of fuel or an increase in the amount of fuel or increase in the yeah. consumption of fuel? Or can it be tracked in that way? You know, in a way, right. for example, you could today say, well, there, are this, there were this many cars in 1960 and there are this many cars today. And you see that tracks very nicely with the increase in Co two. so is there anything from the nineteenth century that we can point to exactly?
1: well yeah I mean that's what what we're seeing what we 're seeing there is 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 the leap into into um, really talk about coal um, and coal has uh, the, the, the burning of coal um, and the acceleration of the burning of coal um, around the North Atlantic and elsewhere um, uh, is the dramatic shift, mm-hmm. and it's not just. I mean, if you look at the it, so we, so, what, what does historian bring to the table? Historian the brings to the table um, the, the economic history and the the population history, which this climate scientist really. Desperately don't know anything yeah, about it. They, mm-hmm. they really want this analysis because now they have they can see what the carlits are because they, they they are extremely good at what they do, but they don't have time to do the history part. Um, that's what we bring to the table, and a lot of what we bring to the table has to be fairly traditional economic history, and and then layered into that is you know new data that that um, people down at Oak Ridge uh, a, a National Laboratory have been able to generate in the last. Um, uh, a decade or so of an analysis of how in, of the source of emissions um, so i 've t- basically correlated those uh, emissions data that they've, they have developed from understandings of how economies have worked and the amount of fossil fuels being burned in different different capacities and what 's very clear is that um, in the 1870s, as we're getting a transition, particularly, you know, I mean, the, the, if you want a specific moment in American history, it's when, um, uh, uh Andrew Carnegie fires up the Bessemer plants in Pittsburgh in 1873. Um, we move to a very cheap way to make steel, um, and, uh, that involves, um, Huge amount of, of coal being burned, reduced to coke, and coke being used in these massive uh, systems to produce the infrastructure that we live in right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the infrastructure that we live in and is degrading all around us um, of, of steel bridges and uh, sewer lines, you know, of uh, whatever, and steel buildings. Um, Emerged, and, my, and I, having looked at all this data, basically, basically, the mid nineteenth century was an environmental crisis in the sense of people were piling into these ramshackle cities, and um, uh, which were. Exp- beloading, built out of wood, and we needed a safe city. So over the course of the late 19th century, massive industrialization to build the safe city, which has electricity, which has sewer lines, which has steel buildings, a fireproof city. Uh, and that drove, uh, required uh, massive amounts of coal burning. Um, by the turn of the century, you can you can even talk about the transition to gas, gasoline, petroleum versus coal as an environmental measure, because it actually reduced, cleaned up the atmosphere to some degree. Uh, the as you make a transition to away, already in the you increase the amount of of energy BTUs uh, coming out of um, of coal relative to the entire economy, uh, the you know the GDPs in the economy that are producing you know, the emissions per GDP go down because you're using cleaner fuels even at the turn of the you know even in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but clearly the whole system is getting is is, is expanding dramatically. What, what we also bring to the table is an analysis of economic supercycles, and if you go on the web and you look for the term. Uh, modern supercycle it'll bring you to an analysis of the modern economy with one big supercycle expansion from the 1870s to the beginning of World War 1 a contraction that runs from World War 1 to the end of World War 2 and then Another huge supercycle expansion that leads down to uh when I was a sophomore in college nineteen seventy three um, and then a contraction uh, that uh, which shaped much of our adult lives uh, and and now we you know we are in the midst of a possibly a third supercycle expansion based on East Asia uh, and based on you know a Electronics and and, uh, 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 not electronics, (laughs) I should say. You know, uh, high tech, high tech, and and biotech. um, But massive production going on in Eastern Asia. Um, So each one of these expansions has produced enormous amounts of CO2 and sulfates, which have masked the effects of the CO2. So there's there's a very complicated story about how global warming has happened in the last. 100 years, 100 last, uh, which has been that actually during these supercycle expansions, um, we put Gigantic amounts of CO2, which lasts for a long period of time in the atmosphere, decades to centuries. And we also put up sulfates. And the sulfates last for, they're you know, like little mini volcanoes. And so we burn coal, we burn oil, and it puts up a mask of sulfate that actually has a cooling effect regionally. So if you look at the, the Earth um, from the, the, the modeling, and they're actually cooler strips one of them is actually mid-america. It's actually kind of cooler. And there's, you know and they're exactly there're three of them. One of them is mid-america out of the atlantic, another is Europe stretching into into Russia, and another is this big smear of cooling coming out of out of China. These are the sulfate the sulfate emissions that create local cooling effects. So the arctic is burning up, the equator is warming up. Um the 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 sea level is rising from a variety of contexts, not just ice melting, but just simply warmer water means an expanded, uh, expanded um, uh, volume in the oceans. Uh, so, the, so the there's all sorts of dynamics going on there. With, with um, but what's what's dramatic is when you reduce the sulfates. Uh, which created acid rain, so we kind of want to reduce the sulfates. Uh, reduce the sulfates, you know, the Soviet Union collapses. Uh, in 1990, uh, uh, you suddenly have a spike in warming. So right now, uh, we are actually in what's called a hiatus. Warming has plateaued since about the year 2002 or so. Plus or minus, and um, people are pointing that. What's going on there? Well, what is going on there seems to be that China is putting an enormous. I mean, if you look at the emissions from China, they have simply leapt up. They were flat. Through the 1970s, they began to climb slightly in the, you know, significantly, but not, you know, not dramatically, uh, at Deng Xiaoping reforms, 1970s, 80s, into the 90s. And then in 2002, they simply leap straight up. And um, uh, and so you know, if, if there's a great historical moment, uh, one is Bessemer steel in 1870s, another is 2002 and the launch of the um, a sudden sort of phase shift in the in the Chinese economy, and um, uh, that may in fact be shaping a plateau in um, the 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 increase in warming that had been skyrocketing in the previous twenty five years, uh, because so many more sulfates are in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's you know we're it's the problem of how to man. We are now um, in a situation where we don't just manage our households and manage our towns and cities and our countries. We have to manage the globe, and not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody can. See the patterns and accepts the idea of the patterns um, that d- drive this analysis. But very clearly, we have shaped a we have interfered in the in the Earth system to the degree that we are responsible for um, its uh, safe management. We have to figure out ways to to, sh- to to turn the thermostat, and one of those is to you know radically control the burning of coal. Um, there's many other things we have to worry about, but the burning of coal is very, very high uh, because that's the, the key culprit. Um, around the edges, we may be able to cut down on black soot and black, cut down on methane, um, and they, they, may, they may take enough percentages out to allow us to... To squeak through. And that's the issue now is how much do we, how much do we contain the warming over the next century for, you know, what kind of a world do we give to our grandchildren? Uh, what kind of a world do we leave to the people who come after us? Um, you know, for, uh, I, I study American history and, and, and the, the, um, and my other life and, and, and in the, in the past, um, people have, Spend a, spend a lot of time worrying publicly about what will be the what what country shall we leave to our children? What country shall we leave to our to our grandchildren? Well, now we have to think about what world do we leave to our children and grandchildren? And those of those who are you know, those of you out there who are under forty um, are there's a lot of a lot of unhappiness and, and and concern about what a mess they've inherited. And so what we have to do is we have to um, we have to break the. Place. Political logjam, and that really, you know, is it does involve um, a a political process that involves interests.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cheap well,
1: energy, cheap energy is good. Cheap energy is 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 nice, and it's, it makes my life easier. And um, uh,
0: but it comes at cost, and yeah. that cost may be beyond what we can handle. It reminds me of what uh, someone. I think they were trying to be funny, but there's an element of truth that the best way to. Um, uh, limit your consumption of things is not to consume <laughs> <laughs> it's high yeah. impact man yeah. Yeah. yeah my wife's the previous but yeah. he, he had a uh, impact man I think. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. so anyway thank you very much for writing the book and thank you for putting all of this in context it's a, it's a terrific book we've been talking with John Brook about climate change and the course of global history a rough journey so John let me close the interview by asking you our traditional final question on the New Books Network and that is what are you working on now
1: well, I am doing a variety of things one thing i 'm doing is writing a little blog that i 'm putting on to, just gradually it 'll take uh, putting a few blogs up uh, and, and probably doing this once every two or three weeks um, uh, on the Cambridge site so to kind of keep uh, keep um, uh, commentary on current events and in my, my book. Uh, so if you want to go there, that's to be a continuing uh, text, of uh, text, uh, thoughts about about uh, where we are. And but I'm also um, kind of shifting back to um, back to American history, and I'm, I'm working on a a project um, since um, you know slowly starting in 2010, and now more and more accelerated um, on what I consider to be the causes of the Civil War. Basically, the causes of the American Civil War, um, have to be seen, you know, in a shift in Northern public opinion. The South would defend slavery no matter what. So the problem is, when does the North, uh, suddenly, and I would suggest it is is a sudden process in the early 1850s, uh, change, enough of the North changes opinion to, Scare the South into seceding, and um, and uh, so I'm, it's a very specific analysis of how culture and politics interact. So I'm trying to bridge a gap between cultural history and political history, focus on uh, the early 1850s, um, and uh, Harry Beecher Stowe and and uh, even Stephen Foster, a songwriter, mm-hmm. um, played a key role in here and. And uh, uh, so I'm looking, instead of having, gone, having just done a project that took me into thousands and tens of thousands and billions and billions of years, now I'm looking at
0: months and days uh, in the early 1850s. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you luck with that project. Uh, let me tell everyone again. We've been talking with John Brooke about his book, Climate Change and the Course of Global History, a rough journey just out from Cambridge. I hope everybody has a chance to go and look at the book and perhaps buy it. I really encourage you to do that. So, John, let me thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast and all the podcasts on the New Books Network, thank you very much for your support and for listening in. And I hope everybody has a great week.